You're listening to The Road to Philanthropy with Gary Cohn, a podcast series on giving and working with nonprofits. This podcast is produced by Painted Rock Advisors, a consulting hub providing services to the philanthropic and nonprofit communities. We bring together your values and wealth with opportunities to do good work and make the world a better place. What can we do to help you? Contact us at paintedrockadvisors at gmail.com. This is Gary Cohn. Welcome to The Road to Philanthropy, a podcast series on everything in the nonprofit, philanthropic, and business world. Please listen to the end of the podcast today for a special announcement about upcoming programs beginning in January. Today, our guest is John Friedenberg, Chief Operating Officer and President of the Mary Crowley Cancer Research Institute in Dallas, Texas. Prior to that, John spent 10 years at Marin Health Medical Center in Greenbrae and over seven years at the El Camino Hospital in Menlo Park and Mountain View. John began his career in the philanthropic world for the Jewish Federation, which you'll hear more about, and he moved on to the medical research area about 15 years ago. John has an undergraduate degree from UC Berkeley and a graduate degree from University of California, Davis. Welcome, John. Thank you, Gary. It's great to be here. I haven't talked to you in a while, and I know your career has ended up with you in Dallas as opposed to the Bay Area, where I I knew you from years ago. Give me a little background on how you got into the medical uh, hospital field. Sure. I mean, it's all by accident. My entire career, I mean, the early part of my career, I spent actually as a political consultant, four years running up and down the state of California managing political campaigns. And then I accidentally moved into the uh, Jewish communal world. I was working at what was then called the University of Judaism, or we called it the UJ, now called National Jewish University in Los Angeles, and did that for a number of years, and then got recruited to come back up to the Bay Area, where I'm from, but to work in healthcare, to work at, at a hospital in the Bay Area. And that was first foray into healthcare. And then I got headhunted to go back into the Jewish communal world. And I think that's about the time you and I met when I was the CEO of the Jewish Federation in Silicon Valley and did that for a number of years. And then I got recruited to go back into healthcare and then went to El Camino Hospital in Mountain View. And then after a time, then went to Marin Health in Greenbrae in Marin County and always involved in philanthropy, sometimes exclusively. But then as time went on, I got more and more involved in healthcare administration. And so while philanthropy was still on my plate, it became a smaller and smaller part of my of my portfolio, but always, always involved and always enjoyed the work. And then more recently, through a series of completely unforeseeable events, and I'm happy to share the, the story with you, but I was offered a position to be the CEO of something called Mary Crowley Cancer Research, an organization that I actually visited back in 2008. It's a nonprofit phase one trial clinic, and I'm happy to explain more about what that means, but we do the most cutting edge, the earliest phase cancer trials anywhere in the world. Uh, They do really profoundly important and exciting work. What is uh, the difference between philanthropy in the Jewish world or or the secular world and philanthropy in, in a healthcare world? There, there are mostly similarities. There's more in common than there is not, but the differences really have to do with 
the, the kinds, because there are different kinds of things that people are giving to, usually the, the motivation or how the philanthropist got there is really what's different. Meaning that people who become major donors to fill in the blank, oncology, whether it's their local oncology center or cancer research, usually it's because of a personal experience. Either they've had cancer or a loved one has had cancer. And likewise with, you know, whether it's Alzheimer's or cardiovascular disease or, you know, it's, it's because of that personal experience. And then they become interested uh, as philanthropists in supporting the work that addresses their particular healthcare interest or passion. In the Jewish world, uh, Jewish philanthropy, I think it's for the most part, uh, a little more generalized. It's part of their Jewish identity. It's something that probably started earlier in life, their, their interest in Jewish philanthropy, their interest in at least the organizations in the Jewish community that they're supporting, whether it's around, you know, like when I was at the University of Judaism, Jewish education, or, you know, in your experience, the synagogue, or also in my experience, UJA, Federation, those philanthropists, particularly people that are, you know, super active, it's less a, a specific experience that they had, and it's more about their Jewish identity. So that, that to me is really, is really the biggest difference. Now, you said you were at University of Judaism, which is now AJU in Los Angeles. And I don't know if you know, they're selling their property. Yes, the Sonny and Isidore Familian campus where I worked. <laughs> will no longer be. <laughs> will no longer be. And I have no idea if that's a good thing or not a good thing. It, when I read about it, I was, uh, on the one hand, a little bit sad because it's a it's a beautiful place. And I, I spent four years there and uh, working there and, and have affection for for not just the institution, but the, the place itself. But I also thought at the time I read about it, given, you know, changes in our society and, and technology, it's probably, it's probably the right decision. Yeah, it speaks to the change in society. And now a moment for one of our sponsors. Jorgensen HR believes that the employer's workforce is the single key to customer satisfaction, reputation, growth, profitability, and the ultimate success of the company. Jorgensen works to ensure that employees are engaged, well-trained, and led by owners and management that are passionate about the success of their company and its employees. Jorgensen HR provides outsourced HR on an interim or permanent basis. They provide an audit of the company's HR policies, including work plans, procedures, and compliance with labor laws. They provide affirmative action audits for companies that are required by law to have an annual report. They handle workplace investigations for harassment and discrimination among their HR solutions. Jorgensen HR, results-oriented, driven by passion, guided by expertise. Jorgensen can be reached at jorgensenhr.com, J-O-R-G-E-N-S-E-N-H-R.com. Uh, one of the uh, people I'm uh, very close with in LA you know, says, there are a lot of bad things that happened with COVID, but there are some good things that we learned about COVID, you know. Yes. And and that is that you can reach people and do things on Zoom. People talk about Zoom fatigue. I haven't hit, been hit with that yet. But then again, I don't do it eight hours a day. But I've taken classes on online with Zoom. I, I lead a a group of former temple administrators that are 
either repurposed or retired, you know, once a quarter, it was once a month, now it's once a quarter. You connect with people all around the world, which is much different than in the old days. In the healthcare field, what are some of the, the impacts that COVID had on the field in general? We know about trying to keep track of patients and some of the hospitals that just ran out of space and were in parking lots and things like that. What, how did it impact your, your career? Well, interestingly, at that time I was in Marin, very early days of COVID, you'll recall that we thought that the the bottleneck was going to be ventilators. So everyone was struggling to get more ventilators for the wave of patients that we thought was coming. So we went, I mean, in Marin, for example, we went from having 19 ventilators to having 59 ventilators from having four beds in negative pressure rooms to 36, and from a shortage of PPE to so much PPE, we were distributing it to first responders and nursing homes in the community. Two things happened in Marin. One is the COVID surge never materialized, and people did masking and social distancing, I guess, to a greater extent in Marin than in other communities, so there was less spread. And then once the vaccine came along, the vaccine rate there are going to be PhD dissertations written about this. Pre-COVID, Marin was an anti-vax hotspot. Right. Yeah. Tremendously so. And post-COVID, it has the highest COVID vaccination rate of any county in the state. So there was a, a, a really shocking uh, transition from very low vaccination rate to a very high vaccination rate. And so that combination of masking and social distancing and and then very early high level adoption of the vaccine resulted in Marin never having the, the big surge in COVID patients that most communities had. It, it had a huge impact on the hospital though because everyone who could in those early days who could stay away from the hospital defer their knee surgery or whatever procedure they were gonna have stayed away from the hospital. So it's not just that the hospital didn't have COVID patients, but the overall census was about 50% of normal, which had a huge negative financial impact on the hospital. That was certainly a big impact and something that the administration was struggling with, and lots of other hospitals were as well. You were losing, even those hospitals that had lots of COVID patients, COVID patients and and I don't you probably don't want me to spend a lot of time talking about hospital finances and, and how that works, but uh, COVID patients don't generate net income for hospitals. And people like total hip and total knee patients do. And so even if you had a surge in COVID patients, you still had this decline in the profitable side of the business. Right. And so even hospitals that were bursting at the seams of patients were losing money hand over fist. Right. This is across the country. So that's why there was a, a big federal bailout to keep hospitals from, from going bankrupt. But it, it was a huge problem. And, and of course, you know, as an administrator, I was dealing with physicians and staff who understandably pre-vaccine were, there was a significant level of fear that was rational. They were afraid that they were going to there were going to be COVID patients that were going to come into the hospital. Staff would get COVID. They would bring COVID home, and members of their family would get COVID. You know, in terms of fear and morale and just stress, it was really uh, quite intense. Right. Quite intense in those days. But let's go back a few years. Yeah. You, know, you didn't go to school and, and study 
uh, health care in school. Or maybe you did, but I <laughs> I, I did not. Went <laughs> <laughs> to UC Berkeley and, and got a yes. master's at, uh, what, Davis, UC Davis? Yes, sir. What were you studying then and how did you get <laughs> transition into the health world? I mean, you're interested yeah. in it anyway. It was it was all about fundraising, actually. So I was studying political science in school. And when I got out of school, I uh, hung out a shingle and, as I said, ran up and down the right. state right. managing political campaigns. And when you're doing that, you know, I didn't go to work for one of the big firms where I would, you know, get tasked with, you know, just one very specific aspect of running political campaigns. But I was doing these, you know, low budget campaigns where I was chief cook and bottle washer doing everything. And one of the things that you have to do is you have to raise money to fund the campaigns. And it turns out that I had a certain amount of aptitude for, uh, for that particular task. And I enjoyed doing it and, and had some success. And that led to being offered a position at the UJ to do fundraising for them. So I decided to take a break from the political campaign world and to see what it was like raising money in a nonprofit environment, which what, is what very different. The, I'm sorry, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. What are some of the pleasures you get or warm fuzzies about fundraising? Yeah, so the, the big thing is connecting, helping a philanthropist accomplish their philanthropic goals. I, I, I will say that when I would deal with someone as a philanthropist, I may have been dealing some with someone who was a really lousy spouse or a really lousy business partner or a really lousy parent or a really lousy next door neighbor. But it was clear to me that when I was dealing with them as a philanthropist, I was, I had the privilege of dealing with them when they were their very best self. Were there, you know, one half of 1% of the people I dealt with an exception to that? Yes. But at least 99% of the people I got to deal with as philanthropists were were showing me their very best self. And I love that about fundraising. The, the most powerful, and you've experienced this, the, the most powerful experience that you can have as a fundraiser is with uh, what we call a transformative gift. And it's not, a lot of people misunderstand, it's not that the gift transformed transforms the recipient you know, like the institution that you gave right, $20 right. million dollars to, right. is that it transforms the donor in how they think about themselves. That is just a, an incredibly wonderful experience to have. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Lloyd Burkett Insurance Agency, founded in 1946, provides businesses and nonprofits with insurance services throughout California and the country. They provide business and commercial, personal insurance, workers' comp, and benefits. They specialize in churches and synagogues in the nonprofit world, and they handle businesses of all sizes. Thank you, Jeff Burkett, president of Lloyd Burkett Insurance Agency, for sponsoring our podcast, The Road to Philanthropy. www.burkettinsurance.com. That's B-E-R-K-E-T-T, insurance.com. People always ask me, isn't it hard to raise money? And I go, well, actually, no, it's it's like a dating. You, you, you meet someone, you have a discussion, you see where it goes. If you have a second date or a third date, you know, you know they have capacity. They know you want to eventually ask for a gift. So it's just a matter of figuring out what the right timing is and what the gift's for. 
you know. Exactly. Exactly right. And I totally agree. And, you know, what happens in healthcare, not in my current situation, because I'm working at a cancer research center. So I'm, I'm dealing exclusively with people interested in cancer research. But when I'm at at Mills Peninsula or El Camino or Marin Health, these are full service acute care hospitals. So I remember, this is a true story. I, I uh, This was back in my Mills Peninsula days and I won't name names, but I was somehow, for some reason, one of the wealthiest people in town agreed to meet with me. And I didn't know why, but anyway, I go, I go meet with him. You know, after the introductions, I start explaining to him about this amazing cancer center we are about to build. And, and he interrupts me and says, well, thank you for sharing that. That's very interesting. But I get my cancer care at the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, great. Well, let me tell you about our heart and vascular center that, that, that we're, you know, and I start talking about that. And he says, oh, that's, that's really interesting, John. Thank you for sharing that. But I get my cardiology care at the Cleveland Clinic. So I said to him, and, and he wasn't being a jerk. He was just, you know, uh, sharing with me. And I said, well, that's, that's great that, that you're able to get on your golf stream and, and do that on an appointment basis. But I checked and you live four miles from our emergency department. And if you or a family member ever need an emergency department, you can tell them whatever you want and you're coming here. So I'd like to ask you to consider a gift for $10 million to our emergency department. And, and I was smiling and la- you know, I, this was my first meeting. I had no intention of soliciting him and I had nothing in my, I had no, no emergency room arrows in my quiver. He knew I was joking. He started laughing. I started laughing. From there, we had a very nice conversation and, and he did become a donor, not not a mega donor, but he did become a donor. And I think, you know, in his case, it was because he lives in the community, he just wanted to support his local hospital. You have with a full service acute care hospital or an academic medical center, you know, more than 90 percent of the people you can find something in healthcare. <laughs> that they're interested in because, yeah. you know, yeah. some, something, you know, you know, the conversation early on is to try and figure out what that, what that interest is. Yeah. In my background, I don't know if you know this, but I was a banker for many years before I hit the, the synagogue world. When I was a young banker, like about 23 years of age, my boss said, we're going to a little cocktail reception, bring your checkbook. I go, what are you talking about? He goes, just bring your checkbook. And it was a professions and finance associates chapter of the city of hope Mm. and i wrote my 25 dollars check yeah and got involved and down the road i was chair of the annual dinner at the belly hilton hotel where we honored dick rosenberg of b of a at the time and raised millions of dollars and i was still in my 20s and i got that's how i got involved in philanthropy to begin with i mean it was very dynamic and what's interesting is i came back to la and those guys that were and women that were in that group with me back in the 70s and early 80s are still in L.A., still doing their thing and still involved in the city of hope, you know, 30, yeah. 40 years later, which really yeah. speaks to the impact of the organization. I remember uh, one of my my banking clients was Lala Zato, the football player from the Denver Broncos and eventually the Raiders. And we were going to honor him at a dinner and we brought him to the cancer ward at City of Hope to spend 30 minutes with the kids in, in the cancer worm. And four hours later, we couldn't get him out of there. I mean, he was so in, in, in engaged with what was going on and what the, and how positive the kids' attitudes were about their their issues, you know, and which I could never even imagine that, you know, at that time. So it does have a very big impact. 
you've now moved from the fundraising side of the healthcare field to more the CEO side. How did that come about? Well, that was a, a slow evolution. Um, but what happened was when I was at uh, El Camino Hospital, again, it was a, a situation where it was a, it was a turnaround. So when I first got there, things were very stressful, difficult, and there was a lot to do. So I had a philanthropy in my portfolio, but I had two other things in the portfolio as well. And then just started expanding over time into other areas in, in healthcare and hospital administration that were not related to philanthropy. And then when I got to Marin, it was uh, you know an even more stressful situation. And so my oversight of departments and activities that had nothing to do with philanthropy was, you know, taking more and more and more of my time, which at, you know, fairly early on required me to hire a full-time experienced philanthropy professional to report to me, but to actually run the fundraising operation, the foundation, because I just, I didn't have the bandwidth to continue to do that. Now, I still solicited, I still went on major donor cultivations, I still attended all the foundation board meetings, I was still very involved, but in terms of day-to-day, -day, I, I gave that up about 10 years ago and just started working more and more heavily in hospital administration, which you know, ultimately led to uh, the situation I'm in today of, of uh, you know, again, having fundraisers working for me and, and me just trying to support them as the CEO as best I can. Well, it's very interesting. I'm, I'm actually in discussions with the Northridge Hospital, which is part of the Dignity Health Expanded Network, about going on their foundation board. Mm -hmm. uh, and their foundation board was interesting because it's a, it's a lot of, uh, how do I say this politely? I will be one of the younger people if I join the board and I'm yes. not that young anymore. <laughs> you know? Yes, I, I, I know people who go to uh, dead shows because it's the one place where they feel young and trim. So. <laughs> what, what advice would you give uh, young fundraisers and uh, nonprofit execs in, in the world that you've come from? So it's a combination of patience and persistence, meaning, you know, so much, in, in my opinion, of success is just, you know, working the moves management, just one foot in front of the other and being persistent in that way. I say patience because it's very easy for some people <laughs> to, you know, put a bunch of work in, get in front of a high net worth individual and not get the gift and then think at least in their own head, if not saying it out loud when they get home, saying negative things about the person who decided not to make a major gift. And I say patience because just because someone didn't make the gift in 2022, doesn't mean they're not gonna make the gift in 2025 or 2030 or something. It just may not be the right time for them and I think that's especially true for first-generation wealth. People who've made the money themselves and now they're you know, in their 40s and they're just starting to think about it. And, and I, I haven't kept up on the data, but 20 years ago, there was lots of data that showed that for first-generation wealth, most people don't embrace significant philanthropic goals until they're in their mid-60s or until there's an intervening event in their life, like their last surviving parent passes 
or their best friend drops dead or something that reminds them of their mortality. And so as you're, you know, particularly if you're dealing with like Silicon Valley wealth or, you know, that kind of thing, I think that we need to, as fundraisers, be persistent and do the outreach and do the best we can. But I think we need to be patient and not assume, you know, that someone is ungenerous or to use more pejorative words, stingy, tight. It's just, they're not there yet. They, they're they on their journey. Help them get to that point. Maybe instead of waiting till they're in their late 60s to start embracing significant philanthropic goals, maybe they'll do it in their late 50s if we're able to establish, you know, more right. rapport and more relationship with well, them. Well, the thing you say that, um, Lisa Greer, who is a philanthropist in the LA area, wrote a book about a year ago called Philanthropy Revolution. Uh, and it talks about philanthropy, philanthropy from a donor's perspective. And if you haven't read the book, I would get it for your fundraisers on your staff to read. The premise of the book is that people that, that oversee fundraisers always put pressure on them for the wrong reasons, because it takes time to make that gift come true. And sometimes the timing isn't what you want it to be. And so setting you know annual goals and that, that someone doesn't hit the goal, they get, you know, penalized or they get yelled at or they get whatever. I've had situations where the first gift was only 250 grand, but the fourth gift was 30 million. It takes time to build that along, but we don't give our fundraising staffs time to do that. Very interesting on that end of it. The other thing she talks about is just the incessant, I mean, that's not the right word for it, but the pounding of uh, now that she's a philanthropist and she's visible, how many people try to buy her coffee or lunch and all, you know, it's like how many times do you get hit up for it? Uh, the thing about COVID that was interesting was that after the, uh, you know, probably it was like about April 1st, COVID hit like mid-March of 2020. About April 1st, I had fielded probably a dozen phone calls from philanthropies where I give money to. And all they wanted to do was make sure I was still alive, healthy, and we're ready to give more money. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. We thank our sponsor, Hot Dog Business Growth. Hot Dog Business Growth has over 40 years of practical experience. We've developed best practices for the execution of ideas, professional growth, constructive communication, employee relations, sales strategies, including compensation, pricing, marketing, and much more, such as CEO and leadership counseling, both in the for-profit and nonprofit sectors, customer service assessments and training, sales counseling for individuals, sales teams, sales management support, and pricing strategies. We focus on team synergy. Our leader, Joel Volk, has spent years building the type of team synergy that results in positive relationships and improved results. We have a team of 11 consultants working in the profit and nonprofit world. As Joel says, hot dog, it's a wonderful life. You can find us at hotdogbizgrowth.com. That's hotdogbizgrowth.com. Well, you know, to to your point about Lisa feeling like she's a target now, we had a uh, Marin is blessed with um, with with many generous donors. There was one in particular where you know, and these are these are multiple seven figure gifts. So they're not eight figure gifts, but they're multiple seven figure gifts. And there was only one main condition. Well, there there were two conditions. One is they were giving to accomplish specific things. So it had to be to, you know, to build this building or buy that piece of equipment or something or endow that thing. 
So it was for a specific thing, but but the main condition was that it had to be completely anonymous and it, you know, the source of the gift could not come out. So we had to, you know, set up a special firewall to make sure that it didn't leak and it didn't. And so that that resulted in in more gifts. But they and you know, they said that the reason why they wanted it to be anonymous was that they don't want people to know they have that kind of money. Right. Right. And they don't want to become a target. And, you know, it's hard to blame them for that. Yeah. Yeah, uh, definitely. Well, one of my funniest uh, gifts was when I joined Emmanuel way back when the rabbi said that we have an anonymous donor who's giving us five million dollars, but no one knows who she is. And I you can't I can't even tell you her name. Uh, and I'm the I'm the executive director. You know, you know who it is, you know. So you know, probably two or three months later, I'm standing in the back of the room before a Shabbat service begins, and a woman walks up to me and says, "Hi, I just want you to know I'm the anonymous donor." <laughs> you can't make this stuff up, right? <laughs> and you said, "Can I buy you coffee?" <laughs> it was very funny. So when you're not running a hospital and, uh, and doing anything else that you do in your career, what do you do for fun? Now that you're in Dallas, I should say, what do you do for fun? <laughs> well, in Dallas, I'm getting to know the community. I will say as a third generation San Franciscan, Dallas is not San Francisco, but it is a large, diverse community. I mean, it's more than 7 million people in the metro area and fewer than half of them are from here. So there's, you know, whatever it is that you're interested in, you can find it. So I have a thing about which I <laughs> which I learned in San Francisco as a little boy, I have a thing about feeding giraffes. So there, there are actually two zoos here where you can feed giraffes. I've been to both of them. We're a Shakespeare family and there's a local equity Shakespeare company. And I've been to several of their performances. COVID has kind of messed up going to concerts, but we do like to go to live music as well. And so we do, we do those things. And we're, of course, we joined a synagogue and getting involved in Jewish life here in Dallas and very interesting, very strong Jewish community here. You know, a good friend that uh, ran the, uh, he retired now, but he ran the biggest synagogue, uh, reform synagogue in Dallas. My partner, Temple Emmanuel Dallas. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, you know, this in my San Francisco days, when I went to visit the first time, I was astonished that they had more acres of parking than I ever saw in my life. <laughs> Emmanuel Sampatua has no parking lot. <laughs> There's no parking, yes. <laughs> well, you can you can park in Diane Feinstein's driveway, I guess. We could. We could have been uh, <laughs> uh, my uh, my partner's brother lives in Dallas and they have a, a nice uh, uh, growing up their kids, raise their kids in Dallas. So it's a nice community. Mm -hmm. No question yeah. about it. But uh, you can't hit the wine country in 30 minutes and you can't hit the coast in 10 minutes and I, I, that's what's good about Marin in the Bay Area. I lived in the Oakland Hills and, you know, all the redwood trees around me. And now I'm in the San Fernando Valley of all places. And it's like, oh, my God, you know, show me a tree, <laughs> you know, not a real tree. <laughs> a real tree. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's an adjustment. And but, you know, people have been very nice, actually. Politically, it's interesting because the, the county where Dallas is, Dallas County, actually, voted for Biden in 2020 and in 2018 voted for Beto. So it's a blue dot in a red state. It's not as blue as Marin, <laughs> but very few places are. But it's a, you know, if you 
they have vegan restaurants here. There are veg restaurants here. There are jazz clubs. I know because I've been to all of them. <laughs> you know, you can find your community here. It's good. It's it's hard. You know, it, it's always hard adjusting when you relocate to another community, but it's a good one. It's a welcoming one. And, and uh, there's a lot of things to explore, you know. Yeah. And now I know that you like giraffes. One of the last things I had in LA before my wife unfortunately moved into a facility with her dementia was that we went to Palm Springs and there was a giraffe feeding area there. And I have pictures of her holding up the lettuce and the giraffe bending down to eat it. It's a, a wonderful yes. thing to do, you know, from that. I have a picture of me doing that. At, they call it the living desert. They don't yeah. call it a zoo. It's in Palm Desert. I've actually spent a lot of time right. there. Yeah, it's a wonderful place. the 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 quick story is that when I was when I was a wee lad, I have an older sister. So when she went off to school, my mother and I had some time together, and she would take me to the zoo, and the San Francisco Zoo. And back then, the giraffes were separated from the public by a six foot cyclone fence. And the zoo would sell you a piece of Wonder Bread for a nickel and you would put it on your head and the giraffe would lean over and lick the Wonder Bread off your head. And now, of course, you'd, you'd go to prison if you did something like that, feeding <laughs> Wonder Bread to a giraffe. But that's where my interest in giraffe feeding thing. giraffes, <laughs> yes. Very so good. now I feed them kale and romaine lettuce and carrots. I, I, I've been educated as have the zookeepers. So it, it kind of became a thing between my mother and, and me. And as adults, we would occasionally do it, including at the Living Desert. And then after she passed, it just reminds me of her in, in a very oh, warm nice. and fuzzy way. Nice, nice. Well, thank you so much for being part of our podcast. It was great to have you on the show. I hope uh, I'll, when I get to Dallas to visit sometime in the next year or two, I will uh, give you a ring, we'll get some coffee. Uh, absolutely. I'd love to see you. Love to love to take you out. And I appreciate being on the show. It's great to reconnect with you, Gary. Thank you for listening to The Road to Philanthropy. Coming in January, we'll be beginning a subscriber series for our listeners. Special activities, special programs, and uh, membership benefits. So be on the lookout. We'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. We want to stay connected with you. Be sure to stay connected with our community by giving a like to our Facebook page and following our Instagram at paintedrock underscore advisors. Our podcast is available on all of your favorite platforms. We'll see you at our next release. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>